Hi friends, this is the Theatrical Mustang Podcast, and I'm your host, Woodzik. I'm recording this intro from the newly created all-gender bathroom in CU Boulder's University Theater building, and this is going to be a pretty short intro. This is an interview with my advisor, Bud Coleman. He also happens to be the director for Into the Woods, in which I am reprising the role of Little Red Riding Hood. It's going to be running February 22nd through March 3rd. Two out of the eight shows are already sold out, so make sure you hop over to cupresents.org to get your tickets. We hope to see you at the theater, and please enjoy this episode, episode 124, with Bud Coleman. Bud Coleman, welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. Well, thank you, Woodsick. It's so great to be here. So we are in the middle of Tech Week for Into the Woods, which will be running in the University Theater on CU's campus from February 28th through March, no, 22nd. Thank you. February 22nd, folks, to March 3rd. Two of the three shows are already sold out, so if y'all haven't hopped over to cupresents.org yet, get those tickets because you're not going to want to miss this. So I know this wasn't originally your first choice for this slot. What was the journey of selecting the show and producing it as part of the university theater season Mm -hmm. in 2019? Sure. I loved the show ever since I first met it in 1987. Uh, I think it's fabulous for uh, a university cast because there's a a lot of roles to shine. There's not just one person who's doing all the heavy lifting. Uh, And so uh, I think just from a pedagogical point of view, it's perfect for a college uh, campus to do. And the themes speak to my heart. And so if I'm going to live with a show for six months, (laughs) I want to be happy. (laughs) Right. When we revisit, I mean, because it is not only one of the most produced musicals year after year after year, when Theater Communications Group releases their top 10 produced plays, it's, to the best of my knowledge, it's been on that list for at least five years. And so it's something we keep revisiting. And in my kind of personal (laughs) philosophy as a theater artist, what if we're going to do something that's been done a lot before, what are we going to say that's new? Mm -hmm. In your directorial vision and in the characterizations that have come to light through our process, what would you say is new and unique about this uh, this revival that we're doing mm-hmm. here at CU? Sure, and absolutely, I, I challenged myself with that too. I've directed the show before, so I was like, well, I'm not going to just do that again. What number uh, is this for you directing? This is just number two. This is only the second time I've directed it. Um, but when I directed it at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, it was in the round, first of all. Oh, gosh. So it was a <laughs> completely different experience. Uh, I had a cisgendered female play the narrator, so that was a different experience. And I did follow some of the double casting that is in the text. So uh, uh, the mysterious, well, no, not the mysterious man and narrator, but... uh, Cinderella's Prince and the Wolf, were they the same person? No, I didn't do that either. So what did I do? Uh, Maybe I didn't do any of the double casting. Uh, But it was a radically different experience. It was just one piano player, not a band. So very stripped down musically. Very stripped down. Uh, And so uh, when I was rereading the script, you know, low many years later, the one thing that so jumped out at me was the, the, you know, come Milky White, there are spirits here. And that magic and, uh, you know, uh, the baker's wife says, oh, you know, my husband's undoing a spell. (laughs) (laughs) And then your line, you know, you can talk to birds. (laughs) Which is my favorite line. Which is my it's favorite. Because you can say it so many different ways. And I think what's so brilliant about Little Red and the way that that character is written, you can't really make subtle choices. If you do, you have to do them. I mean, perhaps near the end of Act 2, there are mm-hmm. a few more yeah. subtle choices. But it is not something that you're doing with a fine-tooth comb or a very... Nope. Uh, thin painter's brush no. and so that's what makes it a joy for me to play is that there are so many different non-subtle interpretations of each mm-hmm. line and I think that speaks to the brilliance of the book yeah absolutely and 
that within that range, 99% of them are right choices. <laughs> that's, that, just speaking from an actor's perspective, that's been the biggest surprise and delight for me. I keep waiting for you to tell me to pull stuff back and you have not no. at all. No, because, and it, it has surprised me because typically when you're, you know, you're doing an actor track, you're looking, at, well, what's their arc? And typically that's a single line. Uh, Little Red's arc can be like eight different things. And so it's like, okay, that one works. So we don't <laughs> have to, we don't have to change that. Um, no, I think it's so amazingly written. So the thing I wanted to bring new to this production was uh, the dryads, so the spirits of the forest, uh, so that they are not just metaphorical. We actually put them on stage. And so the audience uh, hopefully is asking the question, well, who are those people? Why are they there? And the choice that sometimes mm-hmm. the characters who are not the witch mm-hmm. see them mm-hmm. and sometimes do we. Do we ever see them? Most of the time we don't. Well, you just sense them. You sense them. Yeah. So I misspoke. Yes, mm-hmm. so it's only the witch who's able to see the dryads. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're unseen spirits that are mm-hmm. making, you know, not only a practical standpoint, making stumps mm-hmm. and logs appear and reappear, but then charging the space with a different kind of energy. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't want them just just to be uh, stagehands. They, their presence is really vital to me to just create that extra energy that's in the room that you can't name but you know something's there and what is that i definitely want to talk through our amazing cast one of the things that has been a delight for me is you know before this show the last con the last show i did was the you know the biggest professional contract i've ever landed and and so it was like going from that to this and this has been such an enjoyable process, but there is sort of that inside of like, well, hopefully a big contract leads to bigger things. And so, so dealing with that a little bit, but what I've been impressed about overall in the cast is just not only the level of talent, but the level of professionalism Mm -hmm. throughout. And everyone is so, so very committed and supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that just speaks to the strength of the training in both CU's BFA in acting and BFA in musical theater program. So I wanted to just Mm -hmm. shout out to that. But before we get into highlighting our amazing cast, I want to talk about our design and production crew. And I want to start with our costume designer, Elise Rosado. I had to be told that she wasn't a professional designer. I went through about four of the six weeks of this process thinking that... She's a pro. Yeah, and one of the yeah. I I wanted to talk to you a little bit because I know that you also have a background in costume design and wardrobe, mm-hmm. and one of the thing it's by far the second act costume of Little Red is I've been I posted on Instagram today I've been in dozens of shows I've worn hundreds of pieces and this is by far my favorite piece, and I just wanted to talk to you about the evolution of that second act design mm-hmm. and how much of the aesthetic of that act two because it's definitely you can refer to that act two original rendering and see where the realist you know the Mm -hmm. the fully executed costume comes from but i just wanted to talk to you and maybe this is more of a question for elise but if you know like how much of that second act aesthetic was influenced by me you know a non-binary visibly queer person playing that role Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say uh, quite a bit of influence. Uh, Early on, when Elise and I started working on the script, uh, and this was also with uh, Jonathan Spencer, our set designer, you know, what is the aesthetic world that the story is going to take place in? And we all uh, agreed very early on that this was not going to look like ye old fairy tale world. Right. So we were not going to use that as a starting off place. So as soon as the non-existent curtain goes up... (laughs) (laughs) That the audience is already in a very theatrical space. And so, uh, as opposed to thinking of things that are anachronistic, for example, the stepsisters have cell phones, in this world, we are spanning a lot of time and a lot of distance. So, I wanted that theatrical. Unfortunately, both Elise and Jonathan were like totally on board for that. Uh, because, along with that, we had to have the discussions of well, what or who is Milky White? Is that going to be an actor playing a cow? Is it a three-dimensional object? Is it a two-dimensional object? Uh, is it realistic? Whatever that means. Uh, and so that that 
milky white discussion also drove a lot of other aesthetic choices. So once we decided she's primarily two-dimensional, she will be operated by different humans at different times, uh, that also then led to other, okay, if, if we're asking the audience to accept this is a live cow, we, that gives us so much range to go, oh, these things are actually birds, even though it's very clear they're on a mobile. Right. You know. Right. Uh, and so the same uh, kind of progression uh, of, well, what is the journey that the some of the individual characters have? With Jack and his mom, it's really easy. They're wealthy. They weren't in Act One. So, right. Uh, but even then, what does that wealth look like? Uh, one of my favorite things that Elise came up with is Jack's mother has two purses in Act Two. Yeah. That she wears at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> because, after all, why would she have to pick? She wants both. She has a, they ha, now have a chicken that lays golden eggs. Yeah. So why do I, who says I have to only have one purse? Right. No, I, right. I, I deserve two purses. Uh, and so just within that spirit of not being bound by, I think, traditional design, Elise then started, uh, you know, looking at, well, what's Little Red's progression? And uh, we were both very inspired by Little Red's line uh, uh you know, maybe she'll make me a cape from the skin of that wolf. Right. Well, if this is how this person is thinking, then if they have choices about what they're going to look like, right. what are they? Where are they going to go with that? And how quickly, how quickly Red makes that statement. That is something that Red comes up with uh, by themselves instead of yeah. having it suggested. To have a 14 or 15 year old go through this traumatic experience, reflect on it, and immediately say, it's okay that I'm giving you this cape that has basically, it is my identity. It is, yeah, I me. don't have a name. I am referred to by this object that I have been wearing. I'm giving it to you because you saved my life. And, and the reason that it's okay I'm giving this to you is because I'm already thinking about how we're not only going to kill that wolf who ate me and my granny, but I am going to wear his flipping skin. Yeah, I had really even thought of that too. And I just, I, I've never, I just think it's brilliant because I've never seen an interpretation the way that it's not only, um, it's not only the wolf's skin mm -hmm. that's incorporated into Red's Act 2 look, but then also... It's a nod to the way in which the wolf is costumed. Mm -hmm. So it's almost as though Red is taking on the persona of the person who attacked them. Yeah. And also just the nod to, I mean, visually, it's definitely a nod to like a deconstructed Michael Jackson thriller mm -hmm. thing. And I love that. Yeah. I just think that's so, I've, I've never seen that. I've seen a lot of versions of Into the Woods, and I've seen a lot of production stills, mm -hmm. but I don't think I've ever seen that no, for Act Two. No, right. I've never. And and the fact that she pulls a knife on numerous people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> With no hesitation. Well, well, and this is what was interesting. What's interesting to me too, like revisiting this character, because both Jack Van Jack Van Glider is that how to pronounce it? <laughs> yes, I think. Yes, I so. <laughs> both Jack and I have played our respective roles, mm -hmm. Jack plays Jack. Uh, and what's interesting, I think, it's the first time I've done a role twice. Mm. Um, and I hope that I get to do many other roles because I think you, it's just really interesting oh, how you revisit it's so rich. revisit that same the same role. But I, I've been sort of like doing an inventory within myself and, you know, the last time I played this role, I would say I was at best, tentatively queer and mm. not maybe sharing that with a ton of people. Mm -hmm. That was like four or five years ago. And then this time through, having so much of my work and my identity be tied up in the non-binary monologues project mm -hmm. and being an advocate for inclusive casting. And then also in that span of like four to five years, also getting um, a PTSD diagnosis and then coming back and revisiting this character and being mm. like, oh my God, this is actually a really nuanced and realistic depiction within this fairy tale character mm -hmm. world of Sondheim and Lapine of, of PTSD, of, a, of an invisible disability, which yeah. I had not even considered <laughs> that first time through. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would say my own journey with Little Red is this is radically different than the version I did 
25 years ago. Uh, that just wasn't in my head. It was, I still, I think, had so much imprint of the original Broadway production sure. where she was cast as a young person. And so for, I think in that production there, it was, the point was, uh, was just anachronistic that she carries this knife around. But when I started asking myself, I was like, wait a minute, that's not anachronistic. She pulls a knife on people repeatedly. Because she was eaten yes. alive. Right. You and know, it almost comes from, raped. I think, I think sometimes people get, it's easily, depending on how it's, this character is portrayed, it's easy to be very annoyed mm-hmm. by her. It's easy to be very one note yeah. about it. And that's actually been something that a few folks have come up and mm-hmm. talk to me about, uh, which, that's awesome. I like, <laughs> I like compliments. That's great. Uh, but if you actually think about her arc dramaturgically, it absolutely makes... I think people don't necessarily make that connection. Mm-hmm. Little Red has a knife because they were eaten alive and had this really traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. And so now they have a knife, and come hell or high water, they're not going to let that happen to them ever again. Yeah. 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 I've... But enough about me, bud. <laughs> well, it's this about is, Little Red. It's about the show. It's about Little Red. <laughs> little Red, me, whatever. Uh, before we get to uh, talking more about our production crew and cast, you worked on the original Broadway production of Into the Woods, and I just tell me about that. How amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I had moved to New York uh, after my undergraduate experience and uh, was at the right place in the right time, I was uh, cast in Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, an all-male dance company, comedic dance company. I toured with them for two years, and uh, after I left the company, I tore one of my hamstrings. And I was like, oh. (laughs) And I didn't have health insurance. You know, you're young, Uh, you don't know what's going on. So no physical therapy, and uh, it just was like, oh, oh, oh. Fortunately, a friend of mine uh, from Texas, who was also in New York at the time, uh, had contacted me kind of out of the blue and said somebody, a friend of theirs, had offered them an interview with New York City Opera in their wardrobe department. And uh, and he was sort of th- being annoyed because he was an actor, and he was like, why would they even think of me for that? And I was like, well, it's a job. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a start. And I had worked in the customs shop as an undergraduate, so I had a little bit of skills. And so I asked Robert, I said, well, would you recommend me to your friend for that interview? If you don't want this, I'll take it. Yeah, right? if you don't want it. Uh, and he's like, oh, I would never do that. And I was like, well, I kind of need to pay rent, so I'm pretty in, darn interested. And fortunately, at New York City Opera, this was actually for a touring production. But when I interviewed with them, just a lovely, amazing people, they said, well, we could give you that job, but there's actually a longer-term contract for here in New York. Do you want to stay in New York? And I was like... The answer is yes. (laughs) I would rather not go on the road. I'd rather stay in New York. So uh, this got me into the world of wardrobe, and I loved it. You know, I was able to pay rent and deal with my broken body at that point. And so during the New York City Opera off-season, another offer came through. Uh, They needed somebody just for three days to work Dreamgirls. And I was like, oh, sure, you know, I'll, I'll go try that. Oh, my Lord. So operas are typically quite slow. So, you know, someone (laughs) sings an aria for several minutes. And then... Not so much with uh, musical theater, huh? So my introduction to Dreamgirls was uh, most of the principal characters had 15 costumes each. Right. And uh, nobody, like, changed clothes in the dressing room because there was no time. So everything was done in the wings. And the speed and the adrenaline, I was hooked. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is it. Uh, and plus, the show is just absolutely brilliant. Yeah, uh, yeah. So those three days parlayed into me just starting to get my name out there, applying for other jobs. And when the opportunity came to apply for, you know, and it was completely unknown at that point. Into the Woods had been done in San Diego, but uh, they'd done a really good job of not leaking stuff. This was before a lot of social media, so we didn't have we didn't have no. internet spoilers for no. every breath we take. So there was truly a lot of mystery around the show, other than this was Lapine and Sondheim's second uh, uh, collaboration. Uh, but it's, everybody kept saying, but it's totally different than Sunday in the Park with George. And I was like, I don't care what it is. I, you know, if I can get on this crew, I'm there. Yeah. So fortunately, I was hired to do it. And uh, even though the show had been done in San Diego already, 
uh, they still were able to get, I think it was at least three weeks, maybe four weeks previews in New York, which was really extravagant, sort of. Uh, and I cannot tell you the amount of mu new music that Sondheim was writing, throwing at actors, getting it in that night, and then other stuff leaving, and we're, we're like, well, don't throw that out. <laughs> that was really good. Right, right. <laughs> but then, uh, so things like Last Midnight were uh, was brand new during previews. And, oh, my goodness. And to think of the arc of the show without Last Midnight, you're like, oh, well, it was it was a whole different second would you call Would you call Last Midnight the 11 o'clock number, or is it more like the 1045 number? It's, it <laughs> is the something number. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the... Uh, and just... Uh, and the talent of the people in that production was just awe-inspiring. And that they also, because it was Sondheim, and I'm, I'm sure that it was able, but once Bernadette Peters had signed on, they were able to really raise the money. Sure. So that the quality of even people playing Granny and uh, was just through the roof. And so the, the skill level was astounding. What were your responsibilities for the show? So I was primarily with uh, Rapunzel's Prince, <laughs> Stuart, uh, Mysterious Old Man, and then uh, The Baker. So that was my main track. But because also the pace of the show is pretty quick, uh, and there were lots of individual pieces that were not employing in this production because it was a very different sure, aesthetic. Sure, sure. So uh, there was a lot of, yeah, trade-offs and stuff in the wings and stuff. Um, yeah. How but exciting. It, it was... Yeah, uh, to be able, you know, there's some shows that you listen to eight times a week and you're like, that's why I get paid. Yeah, I'm, I'm done now. I yeah. am done with this music. But Into the Woods, there were still times, especially in the Jonathan Tunick orchestrations, that I just would be like, if I can just find a place in the theater so I can just experience this 15 seconds of music, I'm in heaven. And then I can go back to my job. Right, right, Because it's just so brilliantly written. Yeah. It's just, uh, and so even the first time I directed it, I really had to just keep pushing myself going, this cannot just be a love affair with this musical. Right. You actually have to tell the story. Absolutely. <laughs> so people can't just sit there and sing. It's fair. It's fair. I could talk to you for hours about all of your different um, costuming gigs you've had over the years or just about the original Broadway production but let's get back to our production yes, absolutely. so we talked a little bit about Elise as a costume designer talked a little bit about Jonathan's scenic design I also love that the set I think what's so brilliant about Jonathan's design is that you need to have a set, set that's extremely flexible because you the it, it's so fast paced it doesn't lend itself yeah. to big changes but mm -hmm the set itself transforms mm -hmm. during the course of the show. Do you want yeah. to speak a little bit to that vision for the aesthetic uh, presentation of the set? Absolutely. Uh, so in a way, it's not that any design is easy, but the track of some of the characters when they come into money uh, really defines what their second act look is. Yes. Whereas when we start asking, well, what's the arc of the forest? Uh, so... Uh, Besides the introduction of the giant and the destruction that she wrecks because people have killed her husband, uh, uh, Jonathan came up with the idea that the forest is starting to enclose on the characters. And once again, he just said, you know, I don't want that just to be metaphoric. I don't want it to just be lighting of like, well, why is it darker? Uh, he, he said, you know, I want the Spanish moss to start creeping in. Uh, and so, and I think it's just stunning that... Uh, that the forest is is just moving in on people because quite a few characters, yours included, say, you know, I thought I knew where I was, but now it it doesn't look where I thought it was or where I thought I was, and so we wanted to make that. the The characters are not crazy when they say that; they really mean that. They don't know where they are. It's a shifting. It's not the woods itself has a life of its own and. Yeah. The geography of the landscape is rapidly changing. changing. You yeah. mentioned the giant a little bit. One of the things I think is most unique in our, uh, our in our production is that there's a physical representation of the giant mm -hmm. on stage. A lot of times, she's just an offstage voice. I think mm -hmm. it's written into the script that like we see a pair of eyeglasses or something. And so yeah. sometimes there's a nod to some of her accessories, mm -hmm. but at least in my experience with Into the Woods, it's very rare that 
there's a mm-hmm. physical representation of the giant on stage. Can you talk a little bit, you know, not spoiling it too much, right. because it's honestly one of the most dynamic visual effects in the entire show. Mm-hmm. But just a little bit about the inspiration behind not only having her on stage, but the design of the giant itself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the giant appears twice in the show, and indeed she's an off-stage uh, presence in her first appearance with us. But uh, with myself and the design team, it was like, well, why does she come back? And then how do we, as a team, make it more than her first appearance? Because otherwise, why, why even bother if, if it's going to be the same? And especially in a, a proscenium house, we couldn't think of any other way to ramp up her second appearance without just physicalizing her. Uh, and so, but then becomes the huge question, well then what does, in the heck does she look like? Right. Because uh, part of the great thing about have her, having her completely off stage is the audience can make up their own minds. What does she look like? Right. Uh, so as soon as we make a choice, then are, are we killing that creativity on the audience's part? And so we purposely went with a very abstract design for the puppet so that people can still project onto her whatever it is imagery they already right, had with right. her. Uh, and so it was, uh, so our, I told the design team what I, I felt like would be a good palette for this uh, amorphous giant design <laughs> is the bread and pupper, puppet aesthetic out of Vermont. Yes, uh, yes. Because they're, they are, they're there, they're three-dimensional, you can see them, but I think there's still such blank canvases for the spectators to still see things individually that other spectators don't see. And I think yeah. we'll leave it at that. Yeah, we'll leave it vague. It's a jaw-dropping moment, and I don't want to... Uh, Spoil it. I don't think I want to <laughs> say anything more about it than that. Um, so going through the rest of our creative team a little bit, talk a little bit about how you came to work with Adam Ewing, who's fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, and who you've worked with before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fortunately, I've had the opportunity to work with Adam several times. Uh, I was introduced to him... Uh, I've been very fortunate to work with uh, Eklund Opera Program for many years now, uh, directing their new student operas every summer. And uh, several years ago, while Adam was a graduate student here on campus, he had been cast as uh, the ensemble who performed in those operas. Uh, I'll just do a a teaser. Uh, When, (laughs) uh, oh my goodness, the gentleman who, I'm blanking on his name right now because I'm tired. the actor who talked to the empty chair at the Republican National Convention. Clint Eastwood. There we go, Clint Eastwood. So uh, a a student composer wrote that speech into an opera. I am not Will you send that to me if there's any representation or connect me to that person? It is absolutely, insanely brilliant. I need to see this. And Adam was Clint Eastwood. And no! To... First of all, just to live in this world, this eight-minute world that this amazing composer had created, and then to work with the amazing Adam Ewing, I was like, okay, this man can do anything. Right. (laughs) Right. Because he's not only our music director, conductor, but also is playing the piano for the entire score, and it's an incredibly difficult musical score. It's incredibly difficult. And I've worked with Adam now on several different student pieces. Adam... uh, Part of the reason he is so at home with Sondheim, he's a mathematical genius. So right. the complicated syncopations in Sondheim, he's like, yeah, sure. Da, 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 da. And he has the insanely gifted ability to help explain it to the performers so that when you're looking at the score going, I have no idea when I'm supposed to sing. Right. Uh, right. That he can break it down and go, it's actually, it's mathematical. You sing, beat, you sing. And then you all go, oh, okay. And so something like, your fault, which we all know can be a musical train wreck. Right. Uh, y'all were able to get over the frustration and then to take ownership and go, no, we actually can do this. And we can actually get to a place where it actually sounds really fierce. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about our uh, sound and lighting team. Mm-hmm. So we have CeCe Smith, who I had the chance to work with on the Comic-Con show I did with Square mm. Product this summer, who's by far the... Honestly, like, the most professional stage management and set, because we worked with her in a more of a stage management mm. capacity, mm-hmm. assistant stage management capacity over the summer. Uh, 
but I love working with her. So she's live mixing 21 channels mm -hmm. in the house as associate sound designer. I just love working with her so much that I brought her. I'm now going to be going on to direct Into the Woods Junior mm -hmm. at Southern Hills Middle School. And so she's coming on uh, to just set up all the tech for that and mentor the crew for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but she's been a delight to work with. And then... Uh, Tell me more about our sound and lighting team. Sure. So uh, Cece is working with uh, a, a professional, Kurt Bradley, who's new to Colorado. His partner is the new production manager for the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Oh, fantastic. And uh, sound uh, is always a challenge for us because we don't have a dedicated uh, faculty member for sound. Gotcha. And so uh, Marcus Henry, our producer, uh, fortunately found the funds and... Uh, taking advantage of this brand new talent who just moved to Colorado uh, and asked Kurt to join us. And so it's just been fantastic to actually have a very knowledgeable artist who's in that role. And then it's so exciting to see CC being able to tap into that and just take her game up another level. Right. Uh, because Adam's, I mean, uh, uh, Kurt's really able to, you know, either help explain why he's doing the actions that he's doing or just going well, yes, we could do that, but actually, if we do this thing, it will be so much better. Right. Yeah, so it's been just, oh, what a blessing to have both of them on this. And then we have another student as our lighting designer, uh, uh, Wes uh, Halloran. I had the opportunity to work with Wes last year on hair in a very different capacity, and then this year he is our uh, lighting designer. And definitely taking <laughs> it and running with it, right. that it's very theatrical, so a lot of the instruments are exposed. Uh, we're not hiding quote, any of the quote-unquote magic. And that Wes is really helping to shape our unit set so that it does look very different from scene to scene, even though it is not moving anywhere. But right. the lighting is making... You, you have to look at it and go, wait a minute, did that set just move? And it's like, no, it didn't. Yeah, but sculpting with the lighting design. Sculpting yeah. with the lighting of... Uh, way beyond just making people look good right. uh, to really making the set become a character. Absolutely. And we have some props that are starting to enter in and they're just wonderfully intricate. Uh, so do you want to talk a little about the process of working with our props designer? Absolutely. So Jonathan, our uh, Spencer, our set designer, had definitely some input into uh the uh, design of the props, but then we also have this amazing student, Ryan Rolinard, and he uh, just went to town as well, uh, because <laughs> since we're in a, a, a fantasy world, we're in a magical world, where a, a cow, a harp, and a hen can be two-dimensional objects, uh, then how does that inform other choices? Right. Uh, we have everything from cell phones to the stepsisters, to uh, hat boxes. When is the last time you ever even saw a hat box? Does anybody <laughs> still wear a hat? Not I'll only, drink to that. Not only do they wear hats, they have hat boxes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's just been uh, just so fun to, once again, think of, okay, how do we uh, want to establish the royal family? We've already met them, but uh, with new props, how do we use props to help tell their story. Who are these people? Absolutely. And I also want to give shout outs to our production manager, Connie, our tech director, Becky, and our master electrician, Cooper, for making everything run so smoothly. Our ASMs, Rain and Luke, our yes. stage manager, Catherine Foltz, yes. uh, and our mic team, Sam and Sylvia. They just so many, again, most of these folks are, uh, most of the ASM and backstage staff are students, and they're yeah. just incredible in their level of professionalism. Yeah, no, we, we really have the dream team. Uh, uh, Catherine is calling, I think, something over 400 just light cues. Right. Uh, and then that's not even all the uh, set cues, uh, things for the pin rail, uh, sound cues. Uh, and she's just on, totally on top of her game, and she's an undergraduate student, so she's yeah. remarkable. Amazing. Yeah. So let's pivot to our cast. I love this cast so very much. We gave a little bit of a shout-out to Jack already. Maybe let's start with uh, Brendan and Rita, who are the baker and baker's wife. Uh, I was your TA for American Musical Theater last semester, mm. 
And I just fell in love with both of these actors just in that in that setting. Mm-hmm. But of course, I felt like I had to keep a bit of a professional distance because I was grading papers and things of that nature. But I remember at the end of our class for the final project, they did all for the best from Godspell, mm-hmm. completely memorized. All the counterpoint was locked and loaded. Uh, using the entire space and I know that you've worked with both of these actors before so mm-hmm. maybe just talk about your journey with them and and why you cast them in these roles sure uh, yeah unfortunately I've had the opportunity to work with them before uh, and I certainly had not precast anybody in the show uh, but in uh, callbacks uh, it just uh, some roles just cast themselves you know people would open their mouth and I'd go okay that we're done right 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 <laughs> uh, we, we don't need to talk anymore uh, and with both of them, uh, they they are good friends in real life, and just the rapport that they have with one another. When I saw just them looking at each other, just doing nothing, I was like, "Yeah, that's it. That's the baker and the baker's wife. Right? They have right. that relationship already." And they, I've been so thrilled with how they have developed that relationship, and finding when the baker and baker's wife are not seeing eye to eye. Sure. Uh, and are having really intense personal disagreements uh, to the point that, you know, Little Red says, so do you fight Do you all? always argue like this? Right, because that was really unattractive uh, ah! and kind of not healthy. Uh, and they have, and the fact that Lil Red's commenting on that, too? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is serious. Y'all, are, y'all need therapy. Uh, and that they have been, and still, it's like an onion. They just keep finding new layers in their relationship. Talk a little yeah. bit about our witches, our very talented witches, Asha and Ashley. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, Adam and I had talked before uh, casting that the role is so uh, vocally demanding right. that we did not want to trash somebody's voice by just overextending it. And and we got buy-in from the production team to uh, double cast the roles so that... Uh, they could alternate performances so that they really could give uh, 100% and not be on stage going, oh my gosh, I, I, there's nothing right. left. Uh, I can't sing right. this tomorrow. Um, and uh, fortunately, uh, both Ashley and Asha uh, just took that as a given and ran with it. Uh, I shared with them and actually anybody who would listen that uh, the current revival of Dreamgirls in New York actually has three women casting right. the role of Effie and they don't distinguish between them. There's not the the lead and then the understudies. They rotate all three of them. Uh, and it's the Effie in Dreamgirls is just like the witch in End of the Woods. It's an insanely difficult role to sing. And so uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this casting is, doesn't become more prevalent because it just makes box office sense. Um, yeah, I that, mean, it helps yeah. to save voices and then yeah. it makes you want to see the show another time, yeah. right? To see what an entirely different actor brings to the role. Yeah. So in the role of Cinderella, we have Maddie, also from Madison, Wisconsin, Ooh. like myself. <laughs> to me, Cinderella is possibly the character that we have as an audience entering in most people have a reference point mm-hmm. to most people have a visual either from Disney Cinderella for from you know Brandy and the Rodgers and Hammerstein adaptation Julie Andrews mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about casting Maddie in this role cuz to me it's like do you the question that becomes as a director do you lean into those mm-hmm. preconceived visual vocal aesthetics about who Cinderella is mm-hmm. Or do you bring something new to it? So talk a little bit about your directorial vision and how Maddie played into that. Absolutely. And that was definitely uh, key conversations with Elise was, uh, you know, as a designer, she really had no interest in just replicating designs that were out there. It's like, well, what's the point of that? Uh, And so I was really very happy with uh, what she came up with as the festival ball gown dress uh, because it is its own unique creation. It doesn't uh, really reference certainly any uh, uh, cartoon or fairy tale, uh, but it it's it's like not even like it's you don't look at it and go oh that's Dior that's Yves Saint Laurent that's ah! it's like she 
Elise is a high fashion designer. She's made her own look for uh, that aesthetic. So I was so pleased with that. And we had talked also that, uh, so pretty early on, we were like, you know, no, we don't need any uh, elbow length gloves. She doesn't <laughs> need a crown. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't, uh, uh, with Jonathan, we did not go with a pumpkin for a carriage. So we just purposely <laughs> stayed away from a lot of tropes that I think if you see somebody called Cinderella and they're surrounded by all these visual elements, then you're not going to really start to unpack, well, who is this Cinderella? And so right. from a visual point, we wanted the audience to, to say, great, you know, you have ideas of who Cinderella is, but we'd like you to join a journey with us on this is a different take on Cinderella. Absolutely. Moving on, we've talked a little bit about Jack at, at playing Jack, but... <laughs> Honestly, one of my favorite people to get to know during this whole process with On and Off Stage has been Sam Cox, who plays mm-hmm. Jack's mother. I think it's a really difficult role to cast because it can't just be one note. She's a character who is fearless enough to confront, not only because Red tries to confront the giant, the baker holds them back they ultimately give up on that idea. But Jack's mother is ready, right? Uh, And so you need someone who is believable in making that choice, but Mm -hmm. not, you don't want it to come across as a stupid decision Mm -hmm. that they're confronting the giant. So talk a little bit about, yeah, about Sam and that role. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And, also, when we decided that, you know, we would, like, give her two purses in Act 2, even though we may be making fun of some of her choices, we as an, or I as a director certainly don't want the audience to dismiss her and go, well, she's just crazy and she's shallow and who cares about her? Uh, because right. Because we do, I feel like we have to care about her. And what drives every decision that Jack's mother makes, pretty much, is uh, protecting her son. Right. She's been abandoned by her husband. She has no money. She has no idea what's going to happen next. And even when she comes into money, uh, that protection that she has for this other human being trumps everything. And so, and so we talked with Sam about, you know, okay, what is that drive? And how do you keep tapping into that drive? Because it, it's the same objective, but the tactics keep changing. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving on to Kyle Lawrence, who plays our narrator... I can't believe some of these actors are freshmen, but exactly talk about because in the callbacks you had you had folks of different all different genders yeah. up for the role of the narrator to talk a little bit about your vision of the narrator within the show and why Kyle is a good fit for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, uh, certainly in terms of uh, non traditional casting, the narrator role is the easiest because absolutely who, who is the narrator? So I really. Uh, just kept pushing myself with every person who had auditioned. Could they be the narrator? Could they right, be the narrator? Right. Could they be the narrator? So, goodness, I, I think I called back 12 people for that role, which ordinarily I would, would never do that for a role. But I really just wanted to keep, okay, really, all options are on the table uh, because they don't have to, I don't need to worry with how they look with another particular actor. It doesn't matter. They, right. they, they interface with everybody and don't. It's just such an odd thing. And uh, there was something about Kyle's presence and his voice uh, because the the narrator I think is deceptively easy you think well they just tell the story you know what's the, what's the big deal and it's 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 so it's actually a really difficult role to cast because it's got to be somebody that the audience trusts right but then needs to care about because if we don't care about them and if they're annoying then we don't care that they get uh, they have un- an un- unfortunate. They have an unfortunate incident that we will not reveal if you haven't seen exactly. the show in Act Two. Exactly. So uh, we need to care about them, and Kyle just had all of that in spades. And I just was like, uh, and it's got to be somebody that we want to be around for two and a half hours because he right. literally takes us on the journey. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's a freshman. What? <laughs> Insanely talented. So let's talk about our two princes. If. And this is one of the shows where I want to, I mean, I, I will play the witch yes. before I die. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but then also, I want to come back to this and play just almost 
every oh, rule. Yeah. It's actually, this is another meeting, but it's an idea that I have for my dissertation is finding, finding the money, working with uh, costume designer Megan Anderson Doyle for her to do a rendering and then a full execution of me in every single role in Into the Woods. <laughs> I'm uh, there, I'm there. Because I'm like, what, like, let's show, let's show people what a non-binary body yeah, can do. Right. Uh, and then it would just be gravy if I could record all of the songs as Absolutely. written. But, uh, so, <laughs> surprise, that's a dissertation idea. But, uh, I love The Princes so much. I remember the first time I saw this show, Agony was the song that I, walked away mm. wanting mm-hmm. to learn. And so the other master student we have in our cast is Bryce Spartu, who plays mm-hmm. Cinderella's Prince. Uh, and he, his brother is <laughs> just MVP uh, Grant Bowman, who I, one time he walked after me, he's like, yeah, you know, your use of leopard print in your wardrobe is iconic. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Grant thinks I'm iconic. That's amazing. But talk a little a bit. Of, yeah, talk a little bit about, yeah, your vision for those two characters and why Grant and Bryce were the right fit. Oh, that, I, you know, there are days as a director when people, somebody walks in the room, you just say, okay, I have to believe in God because <laughs> they're, they're, right? they're the answer to all my desires and needs. Uh once again, I think the two princes are deceptively easy. You think, oh, well, they're just, you know, they, you need guys who look like princes. And it's like, well, what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. Uh, and uh, it is a, a very iconic song, Agony. Uh, it was to Sondheim because he did it. He, there's a, a full reprise of it, which typically he never does. Uh, but their voices just when they sang together, once again, I was just like, okay, that's it. Uh, you know, sometimes you get people, when they sing together, you go, oh, well, yeah, that's okay. And then there's sometimes, they just feel like a hand in a glove. You go, yeah. how yeah. can two people who are not related to each other just live in the same vocal space uh, that you just feel like, that's a bed. I want to lay in that bed. <laughs> right, and they're both, they're both the same height. Like, they're both 6'2 or something, yeah. too. Yeah. So that doesn't hurt either. It, it doesn't hurt. Uh, and, and actually, I had wanted more uh, uh, height variety uh, just to help distinguish the two brothers, but the vocal thing, I was just like, and once again, they are uh, just like Rita and uh, Brendan in that they are just continually to find new layers, new layers to this onion. Uh, Because it's very easy in agony to just make it also a one note experience. Two guys who are full of themselves and they're gonna sing for three minutes. Uh, Well, that's not interesting. Uh, right, right. And that they, as artists, kept continually pushing themselves to go, well, I did that for that line, but what does the next line mean? And what, what do I want out of that line to my brother? Uh, or is this to the, the world? And so they just keep finding these delicious layers that are totally in the script. It's, they're not layering things on that don't exist. Amazing. Yeah, they're let, so special. Let's move on to Cinderella's family. So we have Matthew as her father, Celia as her stepmother, and then we have Beth and Maya as the two stepsisters. All are giving Tony Award winning (laughs) comedic performances. But talk a little bit about bringing that quartet together in Mm -hmm. the casting room. Absolutely. Uh, Once again, I think it's very easy to look at the the step family and go, well, they're horrible people. You know, they did this thing to Cinderella. and they also can be, I think, in performance, very annoying characters. Yes. If, if the actor and the actors don't treat these as three-dimensional people who have their own lives, and why do they make the decisions they make? And right. I've been so thrilled with uh, this amazing quartet because I feel like uh, they didn't write these people off as uh, cartoon two-dimensional characters. And are just also finding their humanity and, and what makes them tick. Uh, I love that Maya and Beth have created this almost like, I, I, I've never talked to the, them about this, but it's almost like that they're twins and they have this almost secret language that nobody else knows. Yes. And you look at them sometimes and go, oh my goodness, those girls are scary. <laughs> <laughs> That's Funny. So, uh, and I love that their their own relationship has all these layers to it. Uh, right. That uh, is just, uh, so you think, 
I think maybe some of the audience might go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who the, those girls are uh, after their first appearance. But then Maya and Beth come back out and you see something else and you go, oh, well, I didn't know that was part of their relationship, but there it is. And speaking about speaking of some of our other characters that are sort of the foils to mm-hmm. um, some of the folks we've already talked about, we have Bennett as the Princess Steward, which is just sort of this <laughs> sleeper role. Uh what talk about the steward? So Cinderella's yeah. prince has a steward, right? And uh, so some productions now have an authorized second steward, and I had entertained that because I was like, "Oh, let's give him a sidekick. You know, he needs a friend, assistant to the assistant." Right, right. You know, why not? And uh, just with casting and uh, number of bodies on stage, I was like, "No, I think I don't want to steal the steward's thunder. Let him be his thing." Uh, and he does get singled out at times. And uh, the great part of the playwriting is that he's not a rug, and he stands up for himself and uh, says, I'm not a slave to a prince. I'm actually a, I'm, I'm a person in here. And just uh, I've worked with Bennett before also, and I know the uh, fabulous river that runs through. I know some of what that fabulous river is that runs through that human. Right, but it is almost like words can't describe because yeah. he has a warmth just in his presence yeah. where he's always checking in on everyone, seeing who needs a hug, seeing mm-hmm. who needs a compliment, and those are my favorite actors to work with. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, fortunately, sometimes I do have the opportunity to select among uh, many talented students, and the bottom line, like with many directors, I want to work with people who are nice. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Oh, and, uh, and Bennett just brings, like you said, so much warmth into the room and caring that that's the kind of humans I want in the room. Yeah, in contrast with how cold his character is. It's kind of delightful <laughs> yeah, to watch. Yeah, totally. Uh, moving on for some of our other, other, other folks, uh, the, two, the two characters that start out, there, there are other folks who then who turn into spirits over the course of the show but entering in we have cinderella's mother played by caitlin Mm -hmm. and we have the mysterious man played by caleb Mm -hmm. speak a little bit about those two roles uh absolutely uh in the original production in the the script uh the mysterious old man and the narrator are actually played by the same performer yeah and uh that's maybe the only slight thing that I would uh, challenge uh, James Lapine about in the libretto. I don't feel like that there's a payoff for that double casting. Uh, right, right. It, it's there, the audience sees it, but I don't find a theatrical payoff for that. And uh, so I didn't double cast them in this production, and which allows me then to use the mysterious old man more than they would normally because then he can appear on stage at the same time as the narrator, uh, and which would be impossible otherwise, which I think also diminishes the mysterious old man because there are times he, I feel like, needs to be around right. just observing that if we rob him of those experiences, then we rob the character of, of depth. Uh, and fortunately, uh, Caleb was just totally game to just be sometimes that presence who just watches. Uh, and I wanted there to not only be Cinderella's mom, who's kind of looking after uh, Cinderella, but really ramp up before the audience even knows the mysterious old man's relation to the baker. Why is the mysterious old man around when the baker's on stage? And just to set up that, that he's got somebody looking out for him too. Speak a little bit more about the role of Cinderella's Mm -hmm. mother, because it's sort of this, she stands out in the first act Mm -hmm. and and she sort of she's the one who guides the prince and makes sure that he chooses the right the right young lady to fit mm-hmm. the shoe. It's arguably one of the most beautiful vocal lines in the show, I would say. Absolutely. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it's also really difficult to sing. Yeah. The Passaggio is in a I I've seen a lot of different women sing the role and it's really hard to find somebody where it just sits in the right place in their voice. And I think, you know, once again, I'm making up stuff for Sondheim. I almost wonder if he, because he knows so much about the human voice, I almost wonder if he did that on purpose to give her just this eerie sound. So it's more than just beautiful. And, right, and right. Sondheim almost always challenges himself, don't just write pretty. Anybody can do pretty. What's in there? What's what's the rub? And I think he, I think that's why he pitched this in a 
interesting place in a woman's voice to find that eerie quality because she's she's dead. So what does a dead person yeah. sound like? Right. Um, yeah. Love it. And speaking about high and difficult and eerie <laughs> soprano lines, uh, we have Kate as Rapunzel. Rapunzel is the biggest question mark of a role for me in yeah. this in this show. Tell me about your vision for this character and and uh, what Kate brings to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. How do how do you just approach as an actor someone who's been trapped in a tower for all of her life, uh, and treated like an object? Uh, and then when Rapunzel's prince does free her from the tower, does she have any skills on how to cope? And we find out that she doesn't because. Uh, yeah. what the witch thinks is uh, uh, the witch says I gave you protection uh, and we find out that oh that was the worst thing you could possibly do to somebody because right. she has no skills of how to cope uh, she has sex she probably has no idea what that was uh, she has twins she doesn't know what they are uh, right. uh, and doesn't know how to, to cope with the world and so it was a, a decision a, a conversation we also had with Elise of what, how would the witch dress her knowing that she would never leave? Right. And this also led to all sorts of places we couldn't really go because uh, we, we talked about her probably wearing something so fragile that it would not exist in the outside world. Well, oh my gosh. But then yeah. how do we do that, you know, in... The or, practical in world the of practical a stage world. with an yeah. actor. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a real aesthetic challenge of just trying to think of... Uh, well, we've got to have her covered, you know, we're not going to have her naked on stage for Pete's sake, uh, but what would that look like? Yeah. Uh, and so we're still tweaking I love that. the pieces yeah. of her costume that have come in so far. Yeah. And we're rounding out our cast talking about the wolf and granny. I would like to nominate Katie Haggett for MVP because <laughs> oh she's gosh. playing granny. She plays granny. She plays the giant the voice of the baby and sleeping is she sleeping beauty? Uh, she's one of Sleeping Beauty or uh, Snow White. Uh, Snow I think White. she's yeah. Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, and then the flowers. And then, <laughs> yeah, she's a hello little girl. And then uh, Michael Tandy as the wolf, which, oh my heart, he's such one of my. I haven't told him this yet, but just one of my favorite <laughs> scene partners to ever work with. Just so much, just the level of professionalism and respect that he presents. Uh, in working with his scene partners, mm-hmm. I just, I wish every actor had that. So talk a little bit about slating those, uh, our last two folks into those roles. Right. Uh, uh, I didn't know Katie Haggett uh, in Callback, so that, she was a brand new talent for me. And there, once again, there were just, you know, imperceptible things that I just picked up on, just going, I think I want to work with this person. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, she was making choices that were bold, thoughtful, and I just was like, I, I want to work with her. Uh, and uh, without really, I don't think explicitly even, I don't even know if she read for Granny. But then, you know, the words were in her mouth and I was like, yep, there, there it is. <laughs> we're, we're good. Uh, and that she is tireless in, once again, finding why, why does this person do this? Why does this person do this? And just tireless so that in all of her various roles, uh, I'll look up and go, oh, oh, I didn't do that. <laughs> That's Katie. Right. Uh, she's just brilliant. Uh, w- with The Wolf, uh, uh, even when the show was done in 1987 in New York, which now seems like centuries ago, The Wolf was already causing the entire company a lot of dis-ease of what is our responsibility as artists to present this male-identified character on stage who is basically wants to rape or eat this young girl? Right. What is our our role in all of that? And the original costume uh, was a uh, was crafted on a bodybuilder, first of all, who had a 50-inch chest, and then morphed with an actual wolf body so that the actor was completely encased in fur uh, and was frightening. Uh, it was just absolutely frightening. And to have a young person on stage that yeah. they're drooling after, yeah. there were just lots of things. I was just like, even in 1987, I was just like, ah, like, what, right. really? What, what's, what's our relationship to this? So that, I would say of, of all the things about the show that was a reason not to do it was that scene. Yeah. Uh, as a, a director, yeah. I was like, like, how? 
how in the world do we stay true to the text, present the scene, but in a way that also is sensitive to what it is that we're putting on stage. Uh, unfortunately, I had worked with Michael before uh, and felt like that he had the right kind of presence so that I, hopefully the audience will come as a double-edged sword with this. Yes, it is absolutely frightening what he's doing, but Michael as a person is such a sweet soul, you would never believe that he would actually do it. <laughs> right, right. And so how do we do that at the same time? Uh, yeah. Well, we're obviously going to have to have a part two but when we talk more about your professional journey and um, what advice you have for young actors. Well, and your professional journey. Oh, sure. <laughs> Twist my arm. Yeah, let's do it. Let's Twist do my it. arm. Uh, so this will be part one of the Bud Coleman uh, interviews on the Theatrical Investing Podcast. But as we sort of leave folks today and we're encouraging them to visit cupresents.org to get their tickets for Into the Woods running February 22nd through March 3rd, the few tickets that there are left. Yes, a very few. What? You know, let's end this with just first thought, best thought, one of your favorite lines from Into the Woods. Oh my goodness. You know, the the one that uh, just made my heart stop in 1987 that still does is sometimes people leave you halfway through the woods. It I can Chills. hardly even say it. Chills, yeah. <laughs> um, just, it's such a simple line, but it just speaks so much to well, what does it mean to be human and how do you honor and cherish the moments you do have with people before they leave you. Yeah, it's a beautiful note to end yeah. this on. Thank you, bud, and Absolutely. we hope to see you all at the theater. Come see Into the Woods. Mm -hmm.